Remember Miriam? She hid her infant brother in the Nile River while danger lurked. Her quick thinking protected little Moses and helped him rise to greatness in Egypt. Then Miriam played a supporting role while Moses led God's people out of slavery. Coming up, Dana Gresh helps us see Miriam in a fresh new light. Welcome to The Land and the Book. It's Moody Radio's one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Our host is a guy who knows what he's talking about. Dr. Dyer is a respected Middle East expert, having traveled there more than 100 times. I'm John Gager. Glad to have Charlie back here in the U.S. of A. after his most recent trip to Israel. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, thank you, John. It is good to be back. Uh, Temporary though it is, it's uh, still nice to uh, be at home. (laughs) Yeah, you're heading back. Hey, question for our listeners. Do you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Uh, It's true that each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now, Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. And when you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Thank you, Charlie. All right, let's take a look at current events from the Middle East this week, with story number one being Israel's government returning to work for its summer session, and it seems like the fractures within the coalition continue to widen. Is that uh, overly dramatic, Charlie, as a statement or assessment? What are the major issues facing the coalition right now, and can it survive long term? Well, the coalition, John, is in turmoil. And it looks right now like it will fall at some point. But it's not at all clear when that will happen. They did survive two no-confidence votes put forward by the opposition on the very first day they were back in session. And that gave them some breathing space. But the coalition lacks a majority in the Knesset, which makes it very vulnerable. And the political breadth of the coalition creates a very real problem in terms of maintaining cohesion. It contains the far-left Meretz Party, the Islamic Ra'am Party, and the right-wing Yamina Party, for example. Yamina is pushing to increase settlement housing, while those other parties oppose it. Ra'am wants Jordan to control the Temple Mount, while the right-wing parties in the coalition do not. And we've said before, the only thing everyone in the coalition agrees on is that they don't want Netanyahu back as prime minister. Meanwhile, Netanyahu's energizing the opposition to push for legislation that will force the coalition to shatter. They're also trying to woo disaffected right-wing members of the coalition to join the opposition. Those currently in the coalition like the perks of power, but at the same time, they know that if they abandon the issues important to their constituents, they'll be voted out of office at the next election. And that's why the government keeps limping along with Prime Minister Bennett promoting additional West Bank housing while the left-leaning members of the coalition wring their hands but don't threaten to walk away from the government. Now, two options seem possible right now. One is for Netanyahu and his allies to woo over several of the smaller conservative party members. This could allow the government to realign and make Netanyahu prime minister without having to go to new elections. The second option is to push through a vote of no confidence that would bring down the current government and trigger a new round of elections. 
Polls, though, are suggesting the results of a new election right now would be similar to the last one. Netanyahu's Likud party would garner the largest number of seats, but it would still be unable to pull together a working coalition unless some of the conservative parties that are in the current coalition would join him. And they've said all along that they won't change their mind and support him. So over the coming weeks, watch to see if Netanyahu will be able to pull one additional rabbit out of his political hat. Otherwise, it just looks like it's going to continue to muddle along. Well, the number of terrorist incidents continued to escalate throughout Ramadan. But now that Ramadan is over, can the tensions be held in check? Or is open conflict between Israel and Hamas merely just a matter of time? Well, since mid-March, 19 Israelis have been killed in terrorist attacks, Hmm. including the brutal axe murder of three Israelis by two Palestinians just last week. During that same period of time, Israeli security forces prevented an additional 66 attacks and arrested over 500 suspected terrorists. And sadly, the authorities believe the attacks could continue for several more months. Now, part of the reason is the conflict between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is pushing to increase its influence in the West Bank by positioning itself as the one group willing to stand up to Israel. Now, they aren't necessarily actually planning these attacks, but they do seem to be taking credit for the increase in violence. Now, another reason, though, for these attacks, John, is a Quranic, quote, prophecy also being popularized by Hamas that claims Israel will collapse by June 2022. In a recent survey, 73 percent of Palestinians believe the prediction is true. With some variations, the prophecy says that a Palestinian messiah who will be a direct descendant of Yasser Arafat will appear among Janine protesters and expel the Jews from Palestine. The specific day of his arrival varies, so whether or not it's actually going to take place in June isn't that important. But what is important is this belief uh, that's energizing the masses by convincing them that Israel's imminent demise has been prophesied in the Quran. Hmm. Israel's trying to hold the uprising in check, but they're also beginning to lose patience. Some Israeli leaders are calling on the government to target Hamas leadership in Gaza and around the globe should the incitement continue. Hamas's leaders have responded by threatening to renew rocket attacks against Israel. The situation could calm down in the coming weeks, hopefully when June arrives and a Palestinian messiah does not. Now, For all the rhetoric, Hamas knows an extended conflict with Israel could cost them their military infrastructure and much of their leadership. But the next month or so could determine whether things calm down or heat up. I think for the sake of everyone living there, let's hope that calmer heads prevail. Mm. And I think as believers, we need to continue following the command of Psalm 122 and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar and Old Testament professor, former pastor, author, and conference speaker. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of current event stories from the Middle East. Charlie, while you were in Israel, the government announced its annual population figures ahead of their 74th Independence Day. Any surprises in any of those numbers? You know, actually, there were some surprises. Uh, Israel's population is now up to 9.5 million people. And of that total, almost 74%, just over 7 million, are Jewish, 21% Arab, and 5% are members of other religious groups. Now, of the 7 million Jews, 79% are native-born. One of the biggest surprises of all, though, in the numbers was they had 38,000 people immigrate to Israel over the past year. That's the largest number of new immigrants in 20 years, Hmm. and half of them came from Russia and Ukraine, most following the start of the war. 
Now, to put the numbers in perspective, when Israel was born as a country in 1948, their total population was 806,000 people. Hmm. So they've had a 12-fold increase over the past 74 years. One other rather sobering detail also emerged from the numbers. The total Jewish population worldwide is now almost 15 million. That's still short of the estimated 16.5 million Jews who were alive worldwide in 1939. So the numbers are a celebration of God's deliverance and blessing for the Jewish people, but they're also a reminder of the impact anti-Semitism has had on the Jewish people. And it's a reminder we need to do everything in our power to take a stand against anti-Semitism wherever it raises its ugly head. Absolutely. Well, we didn't talk about it last week, but you were also in Israel when they experienced a bomb scare at the airport that was actually caused by a tourist. What happened to bring about all that panic, and what was its uh, result? You know, John, I had just finished telling our group how to prepare for check-in at Ben Gurion Airport, and I used an illustration you know of a fellow on one of my previous trips who tried to smuggle some bullets into his suitcase and nearly caused our entire group to miss our flight. Well, that story paled in comparison to what happened the next day. An American tourist tried to smuggle an unexploded bombshell home in his luggage. <laughs> the security inspectors at the airport, you know, they ask all those thorough, pointed questions. And the one is, do you have any weapons or anything that can be used as a weapon? Well, the passenger then said, oh, I, I got this shell I found on a Golan Heights, and he had it in his suitcase. Well, they immediately called for the bomb squad to evaluate the potential danger of an unexploded shell. And then they announced over the PA system, all passengers are to calmly make their way out of the hall. Unfortunately, some panicked passengers nearby uh, evidently heard what was happening and began running and shouting, it's a bomb! You know, and it created a stampede for the exits. Uh, one man had to be hospitalized for injuries he sustained while trying to jump over a baggage carousel. Mm. Now, order was eventually restored. The family w with the shell were actually allowed to board their flight, uh, minus the shell, of course, after a more detailed interrogation by the security staff. And the moral of the story for everyone who visits Israel is if you come across a bullet or a shell or some other hardware, you don't, don't pick it up and put it in your suitcase. That's definitely not a good idea. <laughs> and that's a look at current events from the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Where are we going in our devotional today, Charlie? Uh, well, hey, we're in that mountaintop experience, and we're heading up to the top of Mount Tabor to visit with Barack. But before that, a conversation with Dana Gresh, meeting Miriam. You'll see her in a fresh new light next on The Land and the Book. Remember Miriam? She hid her infant brother in the Nile River while danger lurked in the reeds. Her quick thinking protected little Moses and helped him rise to greatness in Egypt. Then Miriam played a supporting role while Moses led God's people out of slavery. But there's a lot more to her story as we're about to discover in a conversation with Dana Gresh. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and just before we talk with Dana, here's an important word on sharing Jesus. Finding Messiah in unexpected places. Wouldn't you love for your Jewish friend to find him? Well, let's sit down with Michael Rydelnik and let him kind of take us on a bit of a tour. What would you say, Michael? Well, there's one passage in particular that I found interesting. I was on a translation team for a, a Bible, and I was given the book of Joel to do the initial translation before the team got to work on it, mm -hmm. and we weren't allowed to look at the English Bible. And so I was translating Joel in verse 23 I translated it quite differently than most English Bibles. In the English Bible, it says, Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, 
because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. But in Hebrew, it doesn't say that at all. It says, rejoice because he gives you the teacher for righteousness. That's what it says. Hmm. And it's the phrase that the Qumran Dead Sea Scroll community, they took that for their leader, the teacher of righteousness. But it actually is a promise that the Messiah would come and he would be our teacher for righteousness. Our more litztaka is what the Hebrew says. And uh, I was so surprised when I saw that. And there's actually an article in the handbook showing how this is a great messianic prophecy. To my friend who says, well, that's nice, but I think you're reading too much into it. What do you say? Ah, I'm reading it in the Hebrew. Not too much into it. I'm reading it in the initial, uh, what the text is in the original language. And uh, that's so important not to read into it, but to read it for what the text actually says. Michael Rydelnik is professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Dana Gresh is the best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, formerly Secret Keeper Girl. That's America's most popular Christian tween event. She has authored over 20 books that have been translated into 12 languages. Considered one of the leading experts on the subjects of sexual theology and parenting tweens and teens, her resources have equipped over one million moms and leaders as they seek to raise their girls in confidence and truth. Over 400,000 have attended her live events. Dana has appeared on CNN, Fox News, and the TEDx stage. She lives on a hobby farm in State College, Pennsylvania, with her husband, Bob. Hey, thanks for paying us a visit today on The Land and the Book, Dana. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, one of the few positives that Hollywood has given our culture, I think, is an appreciation for supporting roles. Uh, In the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, Moses is clearly the main character, but Miriam has a significant supporting role. Dana, take us to the Nile River, where Miriam is looking after her baby brother in that hopefully waterproof basket. What do we overlook or maybe underestimate about that scene? Oh, I think we could talk about this scene all day. This scene inspires me as a mom, as a grandmother, um, because when you really think about it, Miriam is not just a supporting role, but her mom is. And we don't really even know her name, Miriam's name or her mom's name. And yet Miriam's mom shows up in that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that this child was beautiful. It's Moses making the hall of faith there, but it's also his parents. And when I think about his mom, I think what a courageous woman she was. So what we do know is that the law was that any Egyptian person that saw a baby boy under the age of two could pick that baby boy up and throw it in the river. That's because Pharaoh's first attempt to use the midwives didn't work. The midwives didn't cooperate with him. So what does this mom do? She builds a basket and she puts the baby in the very place where Pharaoh has declared he should be his grave, his death, she puts him there in faith, and then she puts her tween daughter there to watch him. Mm -hmm. So she's not just putting one child in danger, but another, because she believes that what God says is good and is true is greater than what Pharaoh has said. And that's a woman of faith right there. When you think about how we, as parents, um, helicopter mom, tiger mom, all all the moms today, This is a very different thing. This is a God mom that's saying, I'm going to do what God says to do, which is life is precious, and I'm going to um, have faith 
that he'll write this story in a beautiful way. Wow. Yeah. Boom. I want to zip ahead in the story now. Just after the Israelites have made their miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, we read this in Exodus 15, verse 20. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. It suggests to me that she was a natural leader. Your thoughts? Well, I get chills when I read this account because we know that they left in haste, right? Because the Bible says that they didn't even have time for their bread to rise. They're just like that fast. So I don't know who Miriam was living with. Maybe it was Aaron. And Aaron's like, Miriam, we've got to go. Like now, come on. Like forget everything. They're packing only the essential things, right, is the picture that we get. Exactly. But she takes her tambourine. Really? That, that's what you, th- you think. I'm going to go get my tambourine, Aaron. I'd be right back. It's like, it's like somebody saying, I got to get my flute, my harmonica. No, you don't. You need like your medicine, your clothes, and your food. That's what you need. We are rushing away. But she takes her tambourine. And I believe it's because she understood that her worship was warfare. And I think that Miriam and the women were worshiping and singing while they were in Egypt. I don't think it was like they, they just did it then. This was something they did on a regular basis. It would be like us grabbing our Bible, I think, because, of course, they wouldn't have had the scriptures. But if I lived in Ukraine right now and I had to flee, I'll tell you one of the things that would be in my very small backpack of things would be my Bible. Hmm. This was a woman of faith. Dana Gresh is helping us see Miriam in a fresh light this week on The Land and the Book. And our conversation is based on her Moody Publishers book, Miriam, Becoming a Girl of Courage. Now, this is targeted at tweens. What is it about Miriam that made you say, this is a life that young girls need to know about? Well, because she was a tween when we meet her on the pages of Scripture. Bible scholars think she probably was between the ages of 9 and 12, somewhere in that area. And so these 7 to 12-year-old girls that follow me on True Girl somebody they can really identify with. And another factor is what was she doing when we meet her on the page? She was babysitting. That's what these girls are doing. They're babysitting their little brothers and sisters. If they're 12, they might be babysitting their neighbors or their cousins. And so this is someone they can really identify with. But there's also this factor. Miriam lived in what, let's call it a pre-Christian world, right? Because everything was the antithesis of godly in Egypt. And we have girls growing up in a post-Christian world where everything is very much the antithesis of godly. And so the courage with which Miriam and Moses and Aaron and their parents lived is how we have to live today. So this is a book that all of us should be going to study. We should be studying the lives of Miriam and Joshabed and Amron was their father and Aaron and Moses because they have subtle lessons for us to learn about how we can live courageously right now in this culture. In Numbers 12, the story of Miriam's life takes a turn. She is jealous of Moses. Take us to that scene, Dana, and what we should learn from it. I think, um, you know, she's jealous of Moses. She bad talks him. She's like, why should you be the leader? Kind of like, I've been working as hard as you, but (laughs) why do you get to go up in the mountain? Like, that kind of thing is happening. So, I mean, it's real stuff. Like, I could have that experience with my brother. He's the leader of our family's business. He's with my dad. My dad's going to pass it on to him. You know, why? Why do you get to be in charge of the family inheritance? That kind of thing. No, yeah. I'm not having – everybody It's okay. My brother and I are fine. <laughs> but, you know, this is a very normal thing. Right. But 
God's consequences are very severe because he says, I have ordained that Moses would be the leader. And you are not questioning Moses. You are questioning my authority. And so she's stricken with leprosy. And, you know, it's beautiful because Moses petitions God and God heals her. But the lesson I think that we can learn is that even as leaders, whether you're a leader as a mother or a father, a leader of a home, whether you're a leader of a business or a leader of a church, we are all capable of falling out of God's grace and reading things incorrectly and not being humble Mm. and needing the mercy and grace of God because we're disobedient and rebellious at every stage of life. Yes. So, you know, we see her as a little girl being so faith-filled, but as an older woman, you see her sin and Mm -hmm. she's as broken as the rest of us. Dana Gresh is the best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, America's most popular Christian tween event. She has authored over 20 books that have been translated into 12 languages, including Miriam, Becoming a Girl of Courage. It's from Moody Publishers. What do you think this scene teaches us specifically about the corrosive power of jealousy? Hmm. Well, the Bible tells us that God is jealous. So there's a jealous for jealous for Mm -hmm. good things, and then there's a jealous of. God does not want us to be jealous of. If she had been jealous for Moses, to say, Moses, I want you to be the best leader you can. Let me encourage you in this way. But that's not what it was. It was a jealous of. Jealous of always is a taking from. She wanted Mm. his leadership. She wanted his honor. She probably didn't want the pressure uh, if she got there, to be real, realistic, <laughs> she probably didn't want, you know, all the responsibility. If she had put herself in his shoes, she probably wouldn't have loved it. But there's just a fine line for us as yes. human beings. I mean, we're made in the image of God. We're supposed to be like God and striving in our sanctification to become more and more like him every day. So if God is jealous, a jealous God, what does that mean? Well, it means that he is jealous for us to know the best in life. And when we aren't experiencing the best in life, he's going to do something to set us straight. So we want that. If she could have only been jealous for Moses to be following after God, um, be blessed, be honored, be supported in his role, uh, she would have been on the right track, but Mm -hmm. she was a tinge off. Yeah. Let me ask you, any surprises for you, Dana, as you researched and put this book together? I mean, we We come to a project like this, assuming we know what there is to know, but maybe not. Any surprises? Yeah, I'll tell you my big surprise, which just thrilled me to no end, is as I was studying the Hebrew language of that very first scene where we meet Moses and he's put in that little basket, the word used there wasn't basket at all. It was the same word used for ark when Noah was building something that would be placed into the water, uh, Tiva, T-E-V-A-H. And so, you know, I kind of tend to think, you know, when, when words are in Scripture and they're used repetitively, you see a theme, like you see all the themes of garden and desert, right? Garden and desert all through the Scripture. Look at that, and God is probably putting something together for us to learn about the garden is always representing the flourishing the union with God, the communion with God, and the desert generally represents rebellion and walking away from God. And so I was like, let me think about this for just a moment. Could it be possible that this word tiva being used to talk about Noah's ark and Moses's basket on the Nile River 
has something significant to tell us. And I think it does Hmm. in the sense that both of them were the rescuing of a remnant and it was a future hope. And I think God is always jealous for us to have a future hope in him and through him and by his hand. I don't know, but I have this sense that we need to be ark builders today with Mm. our world the way that it is. And I don't know what ark God's going to call you to build. You know, maybe it's an ark for your family so that you can be a bastion of light in your community. Maybe God's calling you to a ministry that you're terrified of. How would I do it? How would Mm. I have the money to do it? How would I have the power to do it, the manpower, the volunteers, the vision? God is calling to my heart that we need to be ark builders today so that there is a remnant of people who are biblically literate that can bring the truth to the next generation. Listen, they just did a survey. uh, Barna just did a survey of the parents of teens and tweens. 62% of them claim to have a Christian worldview, but when they were asked questions about the Bible, only 2% of them could answer questions in such a way that demonstrated they really did have. Wow. a biblical worldview. We need a remnant. We need to build arcs of faith, of truth, so that we can rescue the next generation so that they would know what God's Word says. What a great place to end this conversation. But I hope it isn't the end for you in your own thinking and studying of Miriam. You can pursue it further in Dana Gresh's book, Miriam, Becoming a Girl of Courage. It's from Moody Publishers. Dana, always great to have you on the program. Thanks for the conversation. My pleasure. Coming up next, Charlie Dyer and your questions here on The Land and the Book. There's nothing more interesting than what other people are thinking, particularly as they read through the Bible. Hi, I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, and I think you'll agree if you hang out with us that uh, other people's thoughts, comments, puzzlement over Scripture is worth taking a look at, and that's our focus on this next segment here on The Land and the Book. But before we get to your questions, uh, I'd like to ask this one. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week, of course, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people here on the program, and it's important to remember that they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news. Right, Charlie? That's right. Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. We have got questions today that are all over the map. Claudia says, I listen to you every Saturday by podcast. Thank you. And if you are not yet taking advantage of that podcast yourself, why not? It's right there at the website, thelandandthebook.org thelandandthebook.org. Do check out that podcast. It's a great way to share us with your friends. All right, to Claudia's question, I was wondering, she says, where the Old Testament saints went after they died. Yeah, we're not given a great deal of information in the Old Testament that allows us to answer that question, but I think there are two details in the life of Christ that can help us. 
Uh, The first is Luke 16. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And though it's a parable, I I think what Jesus shared matches reality. Uh, In the parable, he said, Lazarus went to a place of peace and blessing, which Jesus identified as Abraham's side. That is, Lazarus is taken to a place where Abraham is already dwelling, and he pictures it as a place of conscious blessing, unlike the place of conscious torment where the rich man ends up. The second detail comes from the words Jesus spoke to the repentant thief on the cross. In Luke 22, Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, while their physical bodies were placed in graves following their deaths, Jesus was saying that their souls and spirits would be transported to paradise, which must be a place of blessing. And Paul later mentions the reality that he was caught up to paradise where he heard things that weren't even allowed to be shared. He says that in 2 Corinthians 12. And in the book of Revelation, John writes that the tree of life is in the paradise of God, suggesting that paradise is a place connected to the presence of God into eternal life. Now, from those small glimpses, I think we can say the souls and spirits of Old Testament believers were transported to a place of blessing and bliss that was connected to the presence of God. And based on the account of the rich man and Lazarus, I think we can also say they're conscious of their surroundings and of others who are there. Now, I wish we knew more, but hopefully that little bit is helpful. Well, we promised interesting questions today. Here's one from Norm. I hear your program Saturdays on WSEW in Sanford, Maine. He says, the question, is the setting in Revelation 22, verse 15, which says, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral. Is that referring to the new earth and new Jerusalem? This seems to state that there will be evil and evildoers populating the new earth just beyond the walls and gates of new Jerusalem. Your thoughts? Yeah, and looking at that one verse by itself, well, it could create that confusion, but I think the verse makes more sense in the larger context. In the book of Revelation, John draws a sharp contrast between believers and unbelievers, blessing and punishment, heaven and hell, the new Jerusalem, and the lake of fire. Uh, For believers, the promise is that the heavenly Jerusalem is where we're going to go. God will dwell with us, wipe away all tears from our eyes, banish death, mourning, crying, and pain. That's what he says in chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, and Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter that city, he says in verse 27. In contrast, the destiny of unbelievers is the second death in the lake of fire. In chapter 20, verses 13 to 15, uh, he talks about that. Then in 21.8, John says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which he again calls the second death. Now, all of this is in the context for chapter 22. Uh, Note John's repetition of the same type of people. He says, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolatries, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In other words, from the perspective of the New Jerusalem, the unsaved, characterized by those sins, are outside the place of blessing and bliss. But this doesn't mean that they're just outside the front gate. Rather, they're completely outside the place of blessing because nothing impure will ever enter it. In fact, he says they're going to be in the lake of fire, the place called the second death. Now, here's a poor illustration that hopefully will help. I could say right now, I'm not in Jerusalem. Well, actually, as we're recording, I'm in the United States, several thousand miles from Jerusalem. But John could say, I'm outside Jerusalem, while also saying I'm in the United States. The two statements don't suggest proximity. Rather, In John's case, he's simply telling us both where these individuals are, the sake and death, the lake of fire, and where they are not in the New Jerusalem. But he doesn't require those two locations to be side by side. 
If you just joined us, this is segment three out of four here on The Land and the Book, a weekly flyover of the Middle East, as we often say. And uh, if you joined us midstream, you can always hear the program in its entirety at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Joseph has a question about cremation. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. However, if we're going to have new or transformed bodies, Philippians 3.21, as I understand it, the question is, should cremation be an issue? What about spreading the ashes? Obviously, nothing is too hard for God, bringing all those ashes together. Just trying to make a decision about our remains uh, for my wife and myself so our children won't have to make that choice. Any, any comments, Charlie? Yeah, and I'll start with this. The Bible doesn't speak directly to the issue of cremation. Uh, the normal method of handling a body at death, uh, especially in the Bible times, was through burial. But the fact that the Bible doesn't speak to the issue doesn't mean that it's prohibited. Uh, we know of individuals who died in ways that haven't allowed them to be buried. You know, some perished in fire, some perished at sea. You know, in Revelation 20, John tells of a time when the sea will give up its dead. And my point here is the reality that God's quite capable of reassembling a person's body even if it hasn't decomposed in a grave. Now, I do have two other thoughts. First, one needs to understand the motive behind cremation. Why would someone want to be cremated? If it's a decision made for financial reasons, trying to avoid those excessively high costs of funerals, which really is a business that often preys on the grief of loved ones, well, then cremation might be a good option in terms of being a steward of God's resources. But if the decision is made on non-Christian religious beliefs like Hinduism or some other Eastern beliefs that seek to release the spirit of the deceased from the material body, well, then uh, they're wanting to be cremated for the wrong reasons. Uh, So uh, you need to know what's the reason, and uh, I think there's a good case for being a good steward. But second, one needs to remember that ultimately God will bring about a resurrection of the body. God can resurrect a body that's been incinerated in a fire, drowned at sea, or totally decomposed in the ground. We don't need to know how he's going to reassemble the molecules, but the Bible says all humans will someday be resurrected, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and judgment. And for a Christian, God's promise of resurrection is the assurance uh, that our physical body, whether it's buried or cremated, will be brought back and reunited with our soul and spirit. Sharon was kind enough to write and say that uh, our podcast is the joy of her Saturday mornings, as she puts it. The content is so good, she says, I always listen twice. Again, that podcast is waiting for you now at thelandandthebook.org. Okay, her question. I am teaching Deuteronomy, and note the command to love the Lord with all your heart. We are to bless the Lord, speaking well of him. We are to be careful to obey his commandments. I have an idea of what these mean, but the word also says that we are to serve God. I see the Levites serving in the tabernacle and later temple. My question, though, is how do we serve the Lord today? Well, i got to answer a couple different ways here. In both Exodus and Deuteronomy, serving God was used in the same context as worshiping him, and it's contrasted with serving and worshiping other gods. So it's against that background that the commands to fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him and serve him, cling to him, swear by his name are given. So in that sense, uh, serving the Lord meant acknowledging him alone as the true God. Uh, The second way I'd I'd answer is to look at what the New Testament says about service. Uh, In Romans 12, Paul tells us uh, that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to God, which is our logical or sensible act of worship or service. The word can actually mean both. Paul's saying the practical outworking of it all uh, should show up in our service to God and to others. Uh, Finally, I'm I'm reminded of Jesus' example in the upper room. You know, he personally washed the feet of the disciples 
and uh, said, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done. And he says, no servant is greater than his master. Uh, so in other words, how do we serve the Lord? Well, we, we worship him, love him, but we also love his creation, his creatures, and we serve them as well. Boy, great questions, great answers. Thank you, Charlie. And hey, don't go away. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. He'll rivet us to a place in Scripture and a passage in Scripture. It's next. If you've done any study in the Bible, you know that the period of the Judges, recorded in the Old Testament book by the same name, was a very dark time in Israel's history. Well, up next on The Land and the Book, Charlie Dyer takes us to a dramatic story with a mountaintop moment you will long remember. Intrigued? I hope so. Hey, but before we get to that story, here's a quick story from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land. I have so many memories when I went to Israel in 2006 and in the Garden of Gethsemane, We had a quiet time that we all just sat around, and Jesus made it very clear to me by His Spirit when He said, I was thinking about you when I was here, and I was thinking about all of you, and you were worth it. You were worth every bit that I suffered, and tell everybody that I would do it again if once hadn't been enough. And he had it with a little grin. He said that with a little grin because he knew that the once was enough because his grace is more than enough. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. All right, that's a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that Holy Land experience. Well, Charlie, a moment ago, we promised something of a dramatic moment up on a mountaintop with an unforgettable finish. Am I uh, over-promising here? You are not. Uh, The story itself from the book of Judges is amazing, and Mount Tabor is an incredible mountaintop. In fact, Mount Tabor rises almost 1,900 feet above the floor of the Jezreel Valley. It stands guard over the northeastern edge of the valley. For thousands of years, the major trade route from Egypt to Mesopotamia, uh, what we call the International Highway, passed right beside this peak. Uh, Today, Mount Tabor is also known as the Mount of Transfiguration, though Mount Hermon is almost certainly the better candidate for that event. But the Church of the Transfiguration sits on its summit, and it's reached by a narrow road with a series of hairpin turns. Local drivers pack tourists into taxis and try to scare the living daylights out of them by driving around those turns at breakneck speed. Uh, That ride isn't for the faint of heart, but once we reach the summit, we're rewarded with a spectacular view, and the strategic importance of this mountain and the valley below becomes very clear at that point. With that panorama in front of us, let's look at the events of Judges 4. As the chapter begins, Israel is once again being oppressed, this time by the king of Hatzor. Hatzor was destroyed by Joshua, but it's been rebuilt and was again extending its control over the land. Though the city was located north of the Sea of Galilee, the key to its military domination was here in the Jezreel Valley. The king of Hatzor ruled this valley with an iron hand, or more precisely, with iron chariots. 900 iron chariots. It's hard for us to envision the impact chariots had on warfare. Most soldiers in that day were foot soldiers. They fought with swords, spears, slings, bows, and arrows. Now imagine these foot soldiers facing hundreds of charging chariots. 
the chariots could run over a defensive position or outflank it or race behind the lines to decimate its rear guard. It would be the equivalent today of foot soldiers facing 900 tanks. It was nothing short of suicide. The foot soldiers didn't stand a chance. And that's why the events of Judges 4 are so remarkable. As the chapter begins, we meet Deborah, a wise woman who was judging Israel. She summoned a man named Barak and gave him a direct command from God. Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Good news, Barak. God has chosen you to volunteer for a suicide mission. Well, that's how the news must have sounded to Barak, whose response was less than enthusiastic. He wasn't that certain of God's help in this dangerous mission, so he added a stipulation before agreeing to go. If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Don't be too hard on Barak. He understood the almost impossible odds he was facing. And he was still willing to go, but he would only go if he was certain that God was indeed issuing the orders. And that's why he wanted Deborah, the prophetess of God, there on Mount Tabor with him. Barak summoned 10,000 men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and they gathered, along with Deborah, on Mount Tabor. Strategically, this was a good move. By occupying Mount Tabor, Barak and his forces had set up a roadblock on the international highway. Sisera and his iron chariots were on the south side of the roadblock, while the city of Hatzor and its king were on the north side of the roadblock. It looked like a move to divide and conquer, and certainly the enemy saw Barak's actions as a threat. Sisera gathered his forces to fight against Barak, 900 iron chariots plus all the other foot soldiers. He led them along a small stream, the Kishon River, that meanders through the Jezreel Valley toward Mount Tabor. It was going to be difficult for Sisera to fight his way up Mount Tabor, but he planned to do whatever was necessary to eliminate this potential threat, however insignificant it seemed. And then the unthinkable happened. Rather than remaining on the summit of Tabor, forcing the enemy to fight its way uphill, Barak led a suicide charge down the slopes of the mountain. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Foot soldiers versus chariots on flat, open ground. What was he even thinking? But before you wince and turn away from this almost certain bloodbath, hit the pause button of your mind, because there's one more detail you need to know. The Jezreel Valley offers a tremendous advantage to chariots unless it rains. A sudden storm can turn the normally dry valley into a muddy swamp. And as the rain pours down the surrounding hillsides, the tiny streams in the valley can quickly grow into raging torrents. And that's exactly what God did at the very moment Barak began his charge down the mountain. How do I know this? Well, several details in the passage give us the answer. First, once the battle turned against his forces, Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now think about that. Why would someone trying to get away jump off his chariot? On dry ground, the chariot was faster. But if its wheels got stuck in the mud, then jumping off and running away on foot makes sense. And second, in Deborah's song of victory, she reported that the clouds dripped water and the torrent of Kishon swept them away. God sent a cloudburst 
at just the right moment, allowing the foot soldiers to be able to outmaneuver the chariots. And as we fold up our umbrella and scrape the mud off our shoes after following Barak and his army down from the summit of Mount Tabor, what truth can we carry away with us from this mountaintop experience? Uh, Again, I'd like to suggest two. First, God understands our struggle to trust him. Remember Barak's first response, if you go, I'll go, but if you don't go, I'm not going. God accommodated Barak's concern. And in spite of his initial hesitancy, Barak ends up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. If you struggle to trust God, you're in good company. And second, when you're struggling to trust God, remember that he might just have something up his sleeve that will surprise even you. Foot soldiers can't defeat chariots, oh, unless God also brings along a cloudburst at just the right time. You do your part to obey. And then watch God do something you never saw coming. And through it all, you might just end up having your own mountaintop experience. (laughs) Great story, Charlie. And you know, I find it reassuring when you tell us that God understands our struggle to trust him. I, I guess I sometimes feel he must be real frustrated with me when I'm not so easy to trust. You know, we feel like we're all alone, uh, but when we make the Bible characters not cardboard cutouts, but real flesh and blood people, we we say, wow, they had the same struggles I did and God used them. He can use me. Isn't that neat? And it's a great reminder that God is fully in control, fully capable of handling anything, including us, when we're not as willing to trust. You know, it would sure be great if you would tell a friend about the land and the book. More and more, we're finding out from researchers, even in this uh, digital age of ours, that the endorsement of a friend, the, the veracity of a friend, their testimony makes all the difference. So if you're enjoying the land and the book, if it's opening windows for you and your own understanding of the Middle East, why not share us with a friend? And by that, I mean, tell them where you listen or where they can listen. You know, you can always listen online anytime to The Land and the Book, wherever you happen to might be. Our website is thelandandthebook.org. That's all you need to tell a friend, thelandandthebook.org. That's how they can listen. That's how they can connect with the great online content that's waiting for you, how they can hear past programs and learn about our guests and much more. The Land and the Book. So thank you for sharing us with a friend. And thank you for letting the management at this station know that this program means a lot to you. It's making a difference in your life. They face choices every day on what to air and what not to air. So thanks for letting your voice be heard. I'm John Geiger. Do come back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.